0: And I'm going to ask you today to open your Bibles, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three, and we'll go through the word of God, Ephesians chapter three. Over the past several Sundays, I have been speaking through the love of God. And I hope that the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to understand, to comprehend this love of God. I have tried, and perhaps I have failed. I don't know. I don't know how anyone could be adequate to speak on such a subject. But I have attempted to show the amazing love of God. That which is claimed by the world, that which is misunderstood by the world and that which is misunderstood by many people within the church. And for our text we looked at 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 11 that's where we ended up last week. I really do this to be perfectly honest with you to produce a response. Any good preacher that's worth his salt preaches in order to provoke a response. And the most amazing thing about preaching the Word of God, the most amazing thing about teaching the Word of God, is that is the intent. I want to produce a response. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit adds their anointing upon the Word of God, and it evokes a response from everybody who's listening. But I want to share something with you. The first response that comes comes from me. That God has to convince me of the truth that is being preached. So it's my conviction that precedes it. It's my ability to apprehend it and to believe it. So that when I stand in the pulpit, I can have a sense of conviction that what I'm preaching is truth. And I'm preaching the true word of God. So as we looked at the love of God over the past few weeks, we got past the sentimentality that's usually associated with it, right? It's usually sentimentality. We hear a lot about how God loves us, but we don't understand in depth that great love that God has. So if on this Lord's Day, you're a believer in Christ, a follower of the only true God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, then I pray that you have experienced refreshment and renewal from these past few weeks on, on teaching the Word of God. Conversely, if your, belief in, if your belief in Christ is intellectual, meaning you've got a lot of head knowledge, but maybe you don't have the heart knowledge, then I pray that the Spirit of God convicts you and brings you to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that you would commit your life, that you would repent of your sins, you would flee to Christ, you would cry out, say, God, save me a sinner! And you would trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Today's message is going to be the final message in this series on the love of God. And having sought the Holy Spirit I intend, it's my intention to teach on God's infinite love, God's infinite love. And how vast the love of God truly is for us. How deep, how measurable is the love of God? And to do so, I've chosen as my text Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. But I want us to leave knowing the full infinite measure of God's love toward the follower, toward the believer in Christ. That we would be, as the Apostle Paul states in verse 19 of Ephesians 3, "...and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge." that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Wouldn't it be fantastic if at the end of today, we came and we were filled with all the fullness of God? I can think of nothing better. You talk about preaching for a response? Man, that's the response I want to hear, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. So open your... Your Bibles, if you haven't done, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We have Bibles to give out. Ricky, you take care of that person there. Thank you. And uh, we have Bibles to give out today. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep this Bible as our gift to you. But we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Here we go. You gotta open that one. Now, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background to the text, because it's really important we understand the historical background. Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians while Paul was in prison in Rome. So it's under his first house arrest, and he writes this letter to the church. It's written about AD 61, okay? The church was started by Priscilla and Aquila, and we see that in Acts chapter 18, right? They went to Ephesus. Now, a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city, a major city in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And it was most famous for having one of the original seven wonders of the world. That was the Temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was the Greek god, but was known as the Roman god Diana, right? So it was the center of pagan worship. It was a crossroads city. It had a lot of traffic going back and forth, well-known city. Now, the temple of Artemis, as part of that pagan ritual, had many facets to their religion. There were sacrifices that were placed in the temple, But the most heinous of them all was probably the temple prostitutes that were part. Artemis or Diana was the goddess of love, also fertility and so many others. And in a cultic manner, there were temple prostitutes, both male and female, that part of their devotion to the goddess was to prostitute themselves, And by the way, just so we're clear, to prostitute themselves sexually day in and day out. In the evening, they would descend upon the city, and they would perform these acts as an act of worship to the goddess. So I want to set the scene. It is in this city that a church is planted. It is in darkness... That a church is planted there, right? God, in His providence, God, in His city, in, in His sovereignty, plants a church in the city. Paul pastors this church for a while. Timothy will pastor this church and ultimately John the Apostle will pastor this church. When John is gone, the great early uh, father of our faith, Polycarp, would pastor this church and he ultimately would be martyred for it. It is the church in Ephesus that Paul, that um, Jesus comments in Revelation chapter 2. I know your deeds. You do this well. You do that well. You don't tolerate false teachers. You do all the other different things, but I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. Read Revelation 2, when the Lord Jesus Christ sends the letter to the church at Ephesus, and you'll say, Man, I wish we were half as good as those first list of accolades. But what was said was that they lost their first love. There were those in Ephesus that were teaching false doctrine. Two are mentioned specifically to us. One is a gentleman by the name of Hymenaeus. And another one is Alexander. And they were teaching false doctrine within the church, teaching things like forbidding marriage and not eating of certain foods and so many other different things. So Paul writes the letter to this church to refute false doctrine and to encourage the Ephesian believers to remain steadfast in the faith. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, before we get to Ephesians chapter... 3 Paul begins this as we just read in our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 1. And from Ephesians chapter 1 to the end of Ephesians chapter 3 this is all the doctrinal component of this epistle. And by the way, you'll always see that in the epistle of Paul, it always looks like this. Greetings Doctrinal issues, addressing the issues within the church, and then practical application, and then final greetings and final messages. But Paul begins immediately, immediately immersing himself into doctrine. And the first doctrine that he introduces is God's sovereignty, God's sovereign choice. This is the first thing that he introduces. And he speaks of God's sovereign choice in salvation. And as we read in our scripture reading, he accentuates the following key points. In verse 4, that believers were chosen in him before the salvation of the uh, foundation of the world. In verse 5, in love, believers were predestined to the adoption of sons. In verse 7, that believers were redeemed through Christ's blood and have forgiveness of sin. Verse 13, that after having come to faith in Jesus Christ, believers were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned to you during the scripture reading, 37 times he uses the pronoun. He, his, him. You read Ephesians chapter 1. And you walk away with this clear and distinct message. It's all God. It's all God. Everything that we are impacted by is all God. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul reminds the church of their salvation by God's grace and God's unmerited favor. In Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, he writes this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And in my last message, in the last two messages, I talked about the love of God, and I talked about the love of God that God has for the world, but then God has a great love, a great love for those that are his for the followers in Christ. It is true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But it is also true that God demonstrated his love to us, that God being rich in mercy because of his great love, and he's writing to the church, if you are saved, if you are in Christ today, if you are a believer in Christ, then you could know that you are loved with a great love by our Lord. And that brings us to chapter 3. Now in chapter 3, he's going to sum all of this up. He's going to share how Gentiles are fellow heirs and partakers of the promise of salvation. He shows us that in light of these doctrinal truth, Paul breaks forth. He breaks forth in a crescendo of praise for believers in verses 14 to 21. And he has a very specific prayer, a very specific prayer. And his prayer is that that believers would be strengthened with power through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the inner man. That's his prayer, that believers would be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, that we as believers would be strengthened with dunamis power, God's enabling power. That's what we want. There's such a stale and powerless Christianity that is demonstrated in our nation stale it's stale it's like a loaf of bread that's been left out for a week the freshness of it the vibrancy of it is missing there is power missing in the church that should not be the case for god has given not has not given us a spirit of fear what does he say but god has given us a spirit of power and love where's the power today As a kid, I used to sit in church, and it didn't matter who came to preach. You'd get people that come in there and preach, and boy, they'd get up in that pulpit. And whether you agreed, whether you disagreed, whether you believed, whether you didn't believe, whether you were saved or you were a sinner, I'll tell you what, you didn't leave church unmoved. We need that preaching coming back today. We need that teaching. We need the church to be a place where the Spirit of God moves on the heart, challenges the heart, and convicts the heart. Too many churches are too satisfied with making the people feel good, and they're going to make them feel good all the way to hell. Paul's prayer is here that he be strengthened with power in his spirit In the inner man. In his message to believers, Paul expresses a heartfelt desire that they would not be divided anymore. They wouldn't be divided or quarreling with one another. Instead, he hopes that they would be firmly established in the faith. Firmly, not wavering. That they would be rooted and grounded in Christ. That his desire for them is to have a solid, a solid, robust faith that can withstand any challenge and they would be united in their pursuit, in their pursuit of Christ. He continues by stating that Jesus Christ would dwell in their hearts and they would be rooted and grounded in love there it is there it is just like first john that's the noun the noun agape that they would be rooted and grounded in agape love god's preferential love the love of god that delighted god to love that's what he's praying be rooted and grounded in that love And that love is what we're going to be talking about today as we close out. Listen, believers should have a strong doctrinal knowledge. A strong doctrinal knowledge. But that knowledge must be rooted and grounded in the love of God. There are many people who could quote chapter and verse. There are many people who could give you a good theological overview of the Word of God. There are many people who know a lot of things about God. But that should be accompanied by the very love of God. That should be accompanied by power, There are many people that like to argue theology and they can go point to point and they can tell you why they believe this or why they don't believe that. And many times it is nothing more than just intellectual pride that comes bubbling out. God forbid that should be anyone here. Doctrinal truth should produce a genuine, passionate, affectionate love For God and of God. I hate when I see Christians arguing over things like stupid things and picking on little words. And meanwhile, the church is powerless. It's powerless. Other people breaking fellowship with another person. Oh, you don't think like me. I can't fellowship with you. If I had a dime for every time that happened, I'd be a rich man. So it's important to remember that this love of God that we've been studying should not lead to arrogance, intellectualism, or pride. Pride. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? With the agape love of God. With the preferential love of God. I prefer to love. I delight to love. And as believers, we delight to love one another. And we delight to love the lost. So I want to pick up from here in verse, first I'll read through verses 14 through 17. Ephesians 3 beginning at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And he's going to continue in verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I want to stop at verse 17. Look at verse 16. We talked about this, that he would grant you according, how? According to your abilities, according to your talents, according to your gifts. No, what does he say? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That God would grant you for his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now I want to make a quick statement here. One of the terrible things that has happened in the conservative church many times has been a fear of the Holy Spirit. Has been a fear to say, well, you know, we don't want to be like those people. People who take license in using the name of the Holy Spirit or may attribute things to the Holy Spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. And I'm all for that, by the way. If it's dead, if it's emotionalism, if it's hyped, I don't want it. I don't want it. But, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit is alive the holy spirit is supernatural the holy spirit transcends the human capabilities and the human faculties and the bible speaks that the spirit of god dwelling in the person of god will give strength will give power will give spiritual gifts to that believer to be used for the glory of god in the church for the glory of his name So, when God gives a spiritual gift to a believer, it is not that the believer would be exalted, it is that Christ would be exalted, it would be that the church would be exalted. There are many people who don't attend church who stay home and say, well, you know, my spiritual gift is this, that, and the other thing. But here's the problem. If God has blessed you with a spiritual gift and you are not in the body of Christ, you are not practicing that gift, therefore you probably don't really have that gift. And God is not glorified if you're sitting home Sunday after Sunday and your gifts are going unrealized and unused for the kingdom of God. Now you can, you can say maybe, well, pastor, I'm not like you. I don't teach the word of God. I don't preach. I don't have any other gift. That's, that's not true. Everybody is given at least one. And you know what? In the church, particularly in this age, because we are in an emotionally entertainment-oriented society, what are the gifts that most people esteem? It's the visible gifts. Oh, he pre- you got to hear the way he preach. Oh, the sister could go up there and sing. I wish I could sing like that. Well, that person can play the piano. Or that person could write a poem, whatever it is. What is esteemed are the visual gifts. But for millenniums, It has been the unseen gifts. And what do I mean by the unseen gifts? Gifts of helps. Gifts of administration. Gifts of love. Gifts of evangelism. Gifts that people don't see. Oh, you know what every church needs? Every church needs people on their face before God, praying before the Lord, With faith, believing God, calling on God to send power down to the church and to fill through His Holy Spirit so that God would be magnified, so that God would be glorified, so that God would be exalted. Hey, anybody can go up there and sing a tune. And let me tell you something, anyone could come up and preach. Billy Graham started out with a guy named Charles Templeton. And when they were started out in their ministry, it was Charles Templeton that the people said, this guy is the real deal, not Billy Graham. Charles Templeton will go on later to repudiate the faith, to walk away from the faith completely. He wrote a book, I, don't, I forgot it, the exact title, but Goodbye to Jesus, where he declares his atheism And Charles Templeson died in unbelief. But he was a great preacher. Don't be impressed by what you see. What's needed in the church today, in every church today, are men and women on their face before God, praying for God, with gifts of faith, believing God, that God is going to move and God is going to do something great. And so my question to you today as we look at verses 16 and 17 is, how often do you pray? How often do you pray to be strengthened with power in the inner man through the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John were threatened by the Sanhedrin to speak no more of this Jesus, Beginning in verse 23, they go back to the church. Now they were just threatened. And these were the same guys who did what they did to Jesus. And they say to Peter and John, don't you go preaching anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter and John go back. They go back to the church. The church kneels down and they pray, Lord, you heard what they said. Lord, you know their threats. Lord, we have seen the capabilities of what these people do when they get riled. But take notice of their threats, Lord, and grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. The Bible goes on to say that after they had prayed, the place where they prayed was shaken. And they all began to speak the word of God with all boldness. That's what's needed in the church today. That's what's needed in this church today. That's what's needed by me. That's what's needed by everybody. This is not just a place where people congregate with similar religious beliefs. That is not the church. It is a place where people believe God. And as we were discussing today in Sunday school I've been teaching throughout this whole year, it's a place where people come with faith to believe. And what is that faith? It is faith in the person of God. It is faith in the plan of God. And it is faith in the purpose of God. We need to come together and pray that God would indeed strengthen us with power in the inner man. Look at verse 18. He says that, so oh, that you may be, uh, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up. All the fullness of God. Now, I started out by saying this is the final message in the love of God, and that's where we're going to focus. We're going to focus now in the love of God, in the agape love of God, the love that begins with God, the love that is defined by God, the love that is given by God. And Paul speaks of God's love first of all that it is not superficial, it's not trivial. It's not passive. He describes the immensity and the vastness of God's love. And let me share something with you. No one can understand or comprehend this love if the power of the Holy Spirit is not genuinely in work in that individual. The love of God, the agape love of God, that is defined by Him alone, only those who truly experience that agape love understand it. And now, I want you to listen to me well with this one. Non-believers have no knowledge of the love of God. I want to be crystal clear. They have no knowledge of the love of God. And their understanding of it is incorrect when they say God is love. Remember, to know the love of God, you have to experience the love of God. However, those of us who have been born again, who have felt God's love can understand it. And we do so, why? Because God has generously poured out His love upon believers. Is that something that I just say, or is it something that the Word of God teaches? Well, the Word of God teaches us. Romans 5.5, 5. Paul writes, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. If you have a Bible, if you have a King James that says, Shed abroad, circle that. If you have another Bible that says, "poured it out, circle that. Because you know what that literally means? It literally means that the love of God has been dumped. It has been dumped. It has been emptied. It has been poured down upon the believer. Where? In our heart, the center of emotion, the center of will, and it has been done supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Hasn't been done intellectually. The love of God has been poured out supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 8.3 Listen to this one. Short but sweet. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. Oh, how many times do I say, that we would know God and we would be known by God. Second Thessalonians, 1 uh, Thessalonians 4.9, Paul writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Oh, praise God for that love. Praise God for that mercy. Praise God for that being shed abroad in our hearts. And here in verse 18, Paul begins to sum up by pointing the infinite measure of God's love. And he attempts to describe the vastness of God's love. And notice what he does here. In in trying to explain it, he's going to try and explain it in human terms. He says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, and what is the height and depth of the love of God. These are not four different facets of God's love. The words used here show that the love of God Cannot be contained. That's the point of Paul. It cannot be contained by what we know. It's similar to what he wrote in Romans chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Verses 38 to 39. Romans chapter 8, 38 through 39. This is the Apostle Paul again writing to the church in Rome. And he writes this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. There it is, the agape love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise God. To describe the vastness of the love of God is infinite in measure. Paul has to search the entire known creation with all of its limitations and demonstrate the love of God. And he demonstrates that it's far greater and it exceeds these earthly parameters and these earthly measurements. Now stop for a moment and think. Aren't you glad that is true? Aren't you glad that there's no limit to the love of God? Aren't you glad that when God looked down on you and he saw your sin and he saw the magnitude of your unrighteousness that yet he still was able to call you unto himself because he delighted and he preferred to love you? That blows me away. I can't understand that. Look at verse 19. Paul continues, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This indescribable, inexplicable inexplicable love that Paul speaks of is the center of Paul's desire for the church. It's the center of it. Paul says clearly, I want you to know the love, the agape love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I want you to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to really get the full magnitude of this verse, we got to look at certain keywords in this verse to fully understand this because it gives more detailed meaning and the first one we look at is the word know, K-N-O-W. Now that is gnosko, right? Gnosko is experiential knowledge. It means firsthand knowledge. It does not mean intellectual knowledge. Do you know that many people are going to be in hell and they're going to know John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that people are going to miss eternal life with Jesus Christ? And they're going to, if you ask them, they're going to be able to say, I believe Jesus Christ was the son of God. I believe he's the savior of the world. I believe he's one of the triune members of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Do you know that they're going to be able to say, I believe that the Bible is the very word of God? Do you know that I went to church on Sunday? Did you know I taught Sunday school? Did you know I preached? Did you know I sang in the choir? Did you know I, ha- I went and fed the homeless? Do you know all these things? I know them all. Why am I here? Because they did not know experientially the love of God, which only comes through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. So the first word that he says, and to know. He's not talking about head knowledge. He's talking about heart knowledge. The second key word. And we've been talking about this for four weeks. To know the love. There it is. The agape love of God. He doesn't use any other word. It's the agape love of God. God's preferential love toward the believer. God's delight in loving the believer. And what he says about this is, I want you to know that love. I want you to know it. And this speaks of the love that God has for all whom he has called to himself. It speaks of the love for all That he has brought to salvation and faith. And what is Paul's desire? That we would know that love. I want you to know that love. And you know in knowing that love you become bewildered in that love. If you have been truly saved, you know each and every one of you has gotten to a place in your life where you have said, How could you love me? How is that possible, God? The third word that's used there is surpasses. Great word. It means transcending, it means beyond and above. So I want you to know that love of God. I want you to experience that agape love of God that surpasses, it exceeds knowledge. It exceeds. It's vaster than the human intellect. It's greater than the human emotion. It goes beyond the human imagination. This is what I want you to know. And then he goes on to say it it surpasses knowledge. That's the Greek word gnosis. Again, it speaks of an experiential knowing. It's the same word Mary said when the angel came to Mary and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. Mary responds, how can this be since I know not a man? What did she mean? She didn't know or experience a man intimately. Same word. And the last word there, and I love this word, is the word filled. Filled. And that means to be filled to individual capacity. Now let's look. What is the desire of Paul? The desire of Paul is that to know experientially the agape love of God that exceeds, that transcends knowledge, experiential knowledge that you may be filled up to individual capacity with all of the fullness of God. Paul's not preaching cheap religion. No way. No way. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about this verse. I really want you to listen to this. He's talking about Paul. He says, indeed, in doing so, he almost contradicts himself using a figure of speech which is called an oxymoron. He prays that we may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How can you know something which cannot be known? How can you define something which is so great that it cannot be defined? What is the point about talking about measurements if, the in, if it is immeasurable and eternal? And I echo that. How do we know that which is not knowable? How do we measure that which is not measurable? It is only through the Holy Spirit. It is only through the Spirit of God bringing us the revelation of God that we can know such things. We can experience the love of God. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you repent from your sins, if you turn from your sin and entrust yourself to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I guarantee you, you can know and experience the love of God. And that's what this message is all about. God's infinite love. It's infinite. The vastness of God's love for the believer can be experienced by the one who comes to Christ in repentance and faith. How do we know? How do we know? By experiencing the knowledge that comes with the love of God. In experiencing the new birth, in the experience of forgiveness of sin, in the experience of being accepted by God, in the experience of our sanctification, in the experience over our conviction of sin, in the experience of our newfound desire for God, in the experience of peace with God in the experience of yearning for heaven, in the experience of loving others with the same love which God loved us. It is in the experience of being in Christ that we can come to know and be filled up with all of the fullness of God. Paul makes this point. He's now going to stamp onto this point and make it even more clear. Verse 20 to 21. How can we know? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever, amen. That's a favorite verse to be quoted about God's capabilities. But the true context of this verse is in how do we know the love of God? How do we know that which is not knowable? How do we know that which is infinite? Paul says it's very simple. He is able... He is able, and he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. We sit here and ask ourselves, God, how can you love me? God is able to do it. God is able to reveal that love through you. God is able to break the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is able to write his laws upon your heart. God is able to do this. God is able to bring about forgiveness. He's able to bring about peace with him. He's able to do all these things beyond anything we can ask or think. Therein lies the truth. Just like in Ephesians chapter one, we see all the salvation begins with God. It's processed through God. It ends with God. The same is true of all that come to faith in Jesus Christ. God transcends the physical limitations. God transcends the physical boundaries. God's love transcends the measurements. God's love transcends everything in this creative order. God's love is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And as humans, we are incapable of producing or achieving experiences that enable us to comprehend the love of God. The love of God is so tarnished today by the definitions of the world, it is sickening. However, it is crucial that To acknowledge that we can never fully, we can never fully understand it. We can never fully measure its depth or its breadth. That's why we need spiritual transformation. With man, this is impossible. With God all things are possible how can we know god's infinite love only by a supernatural working of the holy spirit paul desire that we know this love of god which surpasses knowledge it is followed by his prayer to the one and only god who can do this now to him who is able aren't you glad that god is able Aren't you glad? Listen, you know, let me, let me share something. There's a danger in the church that when we get overly pragmatic, when we take the world's system, the world's thinking, the world's ways, and we try to produce spiritual fruit according to those ways, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Paul rebuked the Galatians for this. Did he not? Did he not warn the, Did he not tell the Galatians, now having begun by the Spirit, you're seeking to be perfected by the flesh? It's impossible. Paul says, God is able, and he's only able to do this as believers are strengthened with power through his spirit, as believers are able to comprehend with the saints, to know the love of God, to be filled up with all the fullness of God, and when those conditions in the heart are met. God is able. That word able is again the Greek word dunamis. It means God's enabling power to show his ability. That's what it means. God's enabling power to show his ability. And he says, what can he do? He does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. God's power exceeds all the powers of the universe. God's power exceeds that which we know today are impossible. God's power enables believers in Christ to know that which is unknowable. Specifically, the love of God to unworthy, hell-bound sinners such as you and I. And you can know the love of God. In response to this truth, look how Paul ends this. Paul screams The praises of God in verse 23. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. He burst forth with praise to God in response to God's infinite love. And listen, listen. So should we if we are believers in Christ. Amen? Amen? Paul does something similar in Romans chapter 11. With this, I'm going to close. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 39, after discussing God's sovereignty and the vastness, and boy, I'll tell you what, people sometimes say, I don't understand how Romans 9, 10, and 11 fit in with everything up to chapter 8. I say, I understand it. It's very clear. Here's the sovereignty of God over Everything. Over everything, here's God's sovereignty, showing that it doesn't depend on man. It, it, it is not man who wills, but God who does. But at the end of that, after he searches the entire universe, as he tries and he gives a, a, a monumental teaching on the sovereignty of God, Again, he screams out, he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This brilliant man, this man used by God to reach the Gentiles, this man empowered by the Holy Ghost finally gets to a place and he goes, oh my goodness. How the Depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who can figure it out? We close this brief study of the love of God with the same level of exaltation. That's what should be bursting in your heart. Oh, the mercy and the love of God. Who can know it? But if you are in Christ and you have been saved, you can know the love of God. Church, the question that we all must answer, the question that every single created human being in the history of this creation must answer, is whether or not we know we have come to experience the very love of God. That's the question. And I beg, I really do, I beg. I would go on my knees and beg you to your face. If you have not been born again, if you have not repented of your sins and by faith entrusted yourself completely and wholly to Jesus Christ, if you have not turned from your sins and turned to God, then you know nothing of the love of God. But I tell you today, you can. There is hope. You can. It doesn't matter if you have been baptized. It doesn't matter if you've been a member of church for a thousand years. It doesn't matter if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation forward and then memorized it backwards. The only thing that matters is have you come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible commands everybody to repent of their sins. Acts 2.38, Peter said right there at Pentecost, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Confess your sins to Jesus. Cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As I tell people time and time again, throw yourself to Christ and to the believers. If your life is ineffectual, if your life is missing power, if you say, I'm not the same person I was when I was saved, then I'll tell you what, chuck everything that's holding you back. Throw yourself completely and wholly into Christ. Turn from your sin, flee to Christ and say, Father, fill me with that love and fill me with that power you'll experience the fullness of God. And you'll be filled up with all the fullness of God. And you know what? God will grant that His servant will speak His word with all boldness. Let's pray.